Welcome to a very special episode of the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert Podcast. I'm your host, James Huang, and we have our full crew here today, including tech editor Dave Rome in Sydney, our editor-in-chief Kaylee Fretz, and our illustrious resident pro mechanic Zach Edwards of the Boulder Gruppetto. How's everyone doing Hello. today? Well, Zach's feeling particularly illustrious after you called him yeah. illustrious. Yeah. Illustrious. Oh, oh. <laughs> Well, that, that's good. Maybe if I call him illustrious more often, he'll speak up a little bit into his mic. <laughs> yep. Although I, I, I dare say, I mean, after after we tell people what today's episode is going to be about, I don't think we're going to have that much of an issue getting Zach to speak up because I think he might be a little bit more animated today. It's possible. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> well, uh, as many of you listening to this podcast are likely aware, we're in the midst of a very unusual Tour de France, but... I mean, this first week is you know nearly complete by the time you hear this, but we're not going to be talking about the tour at all today. We're not going to be talking about racing, no strategy, no controversy. We're not, not even going to be talking about race tech. So what are we chatting about today? Well, if you're a regular listener of the weekly Cycling Tips podcast, you'll remember that we promised this week's Nerd Alert would basically be, well, let's just say that everyone eventually just kind of needs a day or a little bit of time to just vent. And today is our moment to vent about all sorts of things, but mainly related to tech-related stuff. Kaylee, why are we so grumpy? Uh, maybe we, we might just not be very nice. I think that's a distinct possibility that we're just very not nice people. I do think it's worth, you know, for sort of context here and to, to be very clear about this, uh, it's worth mentioning the fact that at least me i can't make bike stuff i'm incapable of doing so i would be i would make a terrible engineer and so i I feel somewhat bad about what we're about to do which is basically to talk about all the things that we dislike tremendously from the bike world because i really honestly couldn't do any better myself (laughs) in fact i would probably do significantly worse but nonetheless you know if you can't do podcast and so we will now spend the next 45 minutes to an hour explaining in great detail the various things that bother us about Bike World, which I'm excited about. We should preface this. All bike companies, for the most part now, make really good products. True. So we're very nitpicky, yes. but we can still complain about well, it. <laughs> yes, but but I, I would say in addition to that, the fact that things right now are so generally good make the missteps stand out that much more because it's like, it's like this one bike or whatever it is, is so close to being amazing, except for this one thing that makes it absolutely horrible. Yep, correct. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, with those, with those uh, caveats put in place, let's, let's get into this because I think we have some good ones. Oh yeah. We've got some good ones. And I, I guess I'm going to go ahead and get started. I've, I've been, I've been pretty vocal about this quite a bit in the past, but I absolutely absolutely despise the flat mount disc brake mounting standard i hate Why? it absolutely absolutely hate it now keep in mind i mean this is coming from the perspective of, of someone who has been around disc brakes and mountain bikes long enough to to remember very very vividly the the old 22 mil standard that hayes had way back in the day uh, which is kind of similar to flat mount in a lot of ways um but so to i guess to provide some background Flat mount, I think most people who are listening to this podcast are aware of. It's it's basically the the more it, it was basically deemed to be the more road appropriate 
method of attaching disc brakes to like road and cross bikes and basically drop bar bikes in general. I mean, the idea being that it was kind of smaller and a little bit lighter and, you know, kind of more visually pleasing than post mount, which is what most drop bar disc brake equipped bikes were using when all the stuff started coming into, uh, coming into play. My issue with flat mount. Oh, well, hold on, Dave. What? I was just going to add to the list of why they did it, which is, um, the direction that the bolts come in allows, uh, far more open frame design. So you don't have to worry about uh, clearance from above. So uh, normally with post mount on the early disc brake road bikes, you'd have uh, clearance issues between the seat stay and the brake caliper and flat mount aimed to fix that. Right, because back then road designers typically wanted to tuck the, cal the rear caliper in between the chain stay and seat stay which uh, on mountain bikes, it was more common to just attach the caliper to basically the back of the, the back of the seat, say, essentially. Um, so in an effort to, again, tidy things up, Shimano came up with this new mounting pattern to attach calipers. And yeah, I hate it. So all right, I'm going to get into why. <laughs> should we, before we do any of this, should we, should, we're, there's, there's going to be a format to this, right? Like we have a couple specific there, there things we're going to talk about format. with so, each of these hated items. Love. Yes. Loved. So, I mean, in, in an effort to, <laughs> yes, in an effort to keep this from just being a giant complaining session, which it is still going to be, but I want it to be a constructive complaining session. So basically for every item on our list, we're going to introduce what we're complaining about. We're going to give some background on how, you know, wh why this came to be and the problem it was supposed to solve or, you know, some performance gain that it's supposed to provide. We're going to describe in detail how it just utterly failed in that endeavor and then we're going to maybe present a solution for how we'd perhaps fix it if we have one so with that in mind i will continue on my flat flat mount rant so my biggest issues with flat mount and i think nearly well i think a lot of mechanics will agree with me on this one and, and zach hopefully you'll back me up but we'll find out um because the, the two mounting bolts that are used to secure a flat mount caliper are so much closer together than they are for post mount, it is way, way harder to get the pads to not rub on the rotor because little movements on the caliper are magnified at the pads more than they would have been if you were using post mount. You know, when the bolts are further together, you can make these little movements at the end of the caliper and it's just easier to set up. Um, I also find it to be much more intolerant of you know, variations in the surface alignment. Um, and from my perspective too, I find that the fact that you can really only mount a 160 millimeter maximum size uh, rotor is kind of ridiculous because on mountain bikes, you can typically go, you know, 160, 180, 200, 220 now um, to accommodate all sorts of different riding styles and rider weights and that sort of thing. On the road, you can only do 140 and 160, which I think is dumb. Flat mount is so dumb that Wallace the shop dog just came over and farted at Zach's feet. That's how <laughs> that's how much Wallace hates flat mount. I, I had actually, I had forgotten about the 180 thing. We at, the, uh, at our gravel bike field test earlier this year were playing around with a bunch of you know, various different types of brakes in addition to just sort of traditional hydraulics. And one of the things that sort of occurred to me was like, wow, it'd be really nice if, you know, you could just stick a 180 rotor on the front of these bikes because if you have a mechanical disc or whatever, then just add a bit of extra leverage. And it turns out that, yeah, flat mount on a fork, there's no adapter to run a 180 
rotor there, on most of those forks. There are some brands now doing it, like BMC, the, the gravel bike we tested, the Erz allows a 180, but yeah, it's it's yeah. very much a specific component the latest, to the brand. The latest specialized it. diverge too. Like all the latest yep. gravel bikes, it seems, are maybe going to do that. But I, I would argue, though, on the road, when do you need bigger than a 160? Well, if, if you, your brakes are terrible, if you have... <laughs> If you have mechanical yeah, disc brakes, yeah. If you have brakes, mechanical disc brakes, but if you're not going to have the majority of people don't have mechanical disc brakes on their flat mount road bike. True. Well, but I I would also remind the four of us here that we are all of pretty average or even below average weight, and if you have someone who is riding even a high end road bike who is say you know a hundred kilos or more, they could be really really fit and be quite heavy. And when you have that much mass coming down a mountain or coming down a descent, and if you're on a descent that requires a lot of braking, that's a lot of energy that you have to dissipate. And I don't care how good your brakes are, a person who is 60 kilos does not require the same amount of energy dissipation as someone who's 100 kilos. And the fact that they are both limited to the same rotor size is Agreed. Dumb. Yeah. Shimano would argue that rotor size and heat dissipation are not connected. They like I've sat in one of their tech things. They said rotor size is how much power you want, and how much heat you need to dissipate is from ice tech rotors and ice tech pads. Is what they said. Well, I yeah. I would still argue that someone who has that much energy, that much kinetic energy coming down a mountain would also want yeah. more. Yeah, and I would say it's power. not necessarily yeah. just bigger people. Like in general, that's one of my biggest complaints with the road disc is that the lack of Shimano does a good job, but like heat just dissipation in general, right? Like we know how to ride bikes and you aren't dragging your brakes the whole time, but someone goes to the top of a big climb around here and they drag their brakes the whole way because it's, let's say they don't want to go above 30 miles an hour. And then all of a sudden their pads glaze over and they make terrible noises and then they don't get so hot. They don't really work. Yeah. And the rotors are Brown like that. Yeah. Put a 180 rotor. That's not going to immediately solve the problem. No. Right. What also flat mount also introduced the issue, at least with Shimano's calipers is they made the pads 30% smaller with the flat mount calipers. Than, than they were before with the post mount. So you have less braking surface material, um, which, you know, obviously heats up quicker and wears out faster. So yay weight savings. Yeah, I would argue James' point. I'm not against flat mount as a whole. I think I'm okay with flat mount. My problem with flat mount is poor poor manufacturing tolerances on the frame. Like if you get a flat mount the setup- fact that the flat mount is the frame, not a flat mount. The frame is perfectly made and you put that caliper on and you go to line it up and everything goes on perfectly straight doesn't rub first try like i'm okay with that it's when you have these poorly made carbon frames that are painted garbagely nothing's taped off and there's all this like yeah like that's my problem with flat mount where it sees like yeah. post mount is a bit more forgiving in that i guess well exactly so i guess that kind of brings me to my point i don't i don't necessarily dislike the idea of flat mount the idea of having a cleaner mounting uh, mounting system i think is is a really kind of kind of worthwhile endeavor but i would i wish they had designed it so that the mounting bolts were further apart so you again had that little bit more forgiving nature when you come to like adjust it yeah. i really kind of yeah but i really really wish that the rear caliper didn't have bolts that come in from the yeah. bottom because that is just supremely dumb because I do wish, you know, one of the things that Hayes absolutely got right with that old 22 mil mounting standard was that the bolts all were surface mounted from the top. So that especially on the rear, you could work on it with a single person easily and grab the rear brake lever and loosen up those caliper bolts, everything from, you know, kind of from one side of the bike, even just, you kind of just reach over the rear wheel, 
you could work on it much much easier than it is now because you know now like you pull the rear brake lever and like you know the bolts are underneath the the, the chain stay and like you're kind of like just trying to do all this stuff and your arms aren't long enough you can't see anything it's just really dumb like clearly whoever at shimano that that designed this thing or they came up with the idea for flat mount i i would argue that they were never a mechanic yeah i mean that's one of my biggest problem not this flat mount but like biggest complaints that i could rant about all day long is like things that are designed and engineered but seemingly not attempted to be assembled by an actual mechanic Oh, we're going to get to that, Zach. Don't you worry. All right. Who's next? I have a quick one. And James, I know I know we sh- we oh. shared this one. We, this is on both of our lists. Uh, this is quite quick. Sort of less in depth than than the flat nine issue. Stems with uh, faceplate bolts that face backwards. So much uh, more. Early. I hate them. So, yeah. I just, mm. there's absolutely no reason to do this and yet they do it and i don't own a special reverse faceplate bolt tool like dave does i'm sure he owns one i mean he likes these things because it's an excuse to buy more tools (laughs) (laughs) yes exactly but they're not good tools um no my my point was that uh sometimes they're not that bad like richie for example angles the bolts so you can actually use pretty standard tools to get to them Proto's the same the 3T one, though, yep. garbage. The 3T one is garbage, and I would recommend that anyone that is thinking of buying one get something else. Can, can we all yes. agree that sometimes isn't that bad is not really a high bar to be trying to clear here, though? Like, yeah. I, I mean... Oh, yeah. yes. I mean, that's... A, like, Well, basically what you're arguing here, or basically what you're saying here, Dave, is that some rear-facing stem plate... Uh, some rear-facing stem faceplate bolt designs are just not quite as horrible as other ones. Yes. But none of but none of them are as good as bolts that just come in from the front. Yeah. Where you can get to them. Where like, you know, they're nice and accessible. I basically feel the same yeah. way about C posts. I don't know if we're gonna get C post clamps at some point today, but yeah, yeah. I, I mean I feel that for me they fall in the same category. It's like why do we keep reinventing the seat post clamp? Yeah. I don't it yeah. seems like understand. more and more people are starting to copy Thompson. Yeah. Like the just, two bolt. I mean, I'm looking around Zach's shop right now, and yes, there are two bolt Thompson that... copycats almost everywhere, and for that... But there are also a lot of ones that are just terrible. That's true. There are some terrible ones. Or, or I guess, to give credit where credit's due, I mean, I, I would say that they're not really copying well, Thompson, they're copying Synchros, because Synchros right. came way before Thompson. Thompson but anyway, I guess that sort of is... <laughs> Yeah, but I guess the that's sort of just a bigger category of just you know hardware that is inaccessible in yeah. general. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, my my solution to this is the brands before they release a product should do a tool test with their products, and if you can't use a standard like a bog standard L shaped hex key and a very common ratcheting torque wrench on it, then you need to redesign it. Yeah, I would agree. Correct. Which I would complain. So to talk about your flat mount complaints, I would complain, particularly, I would say not to call out company, but SRAM, they use. <laughs> Torx T25 bolts on their flat mount calipers, which I'm okay with Torx, but they're so shallow that if you, oh, they're like, super they shallow, so easily. And if, let's say, yeah, let's say Dude Bro is out on a ride, his brakes rubbing, he wants to adjust it. He pulls out his crappy multi tool, it's immediately stripped. And oh like, yeah, if you're gonna do Torx, that's fine, but make it make it deep enough that it's not just gonna strip yeah. out when you. The bolt it strips itself in anticipation of the tool reaching. Yeah, right. Especially if you, <laughs> especially if you have red ones where they're titanium too, and it's even softer. Can I yeah. can I can I 
argue this point here? No, don't do torques. Yep. Don't don't put random torx bolts on my bike I think, when yeah. the entire rest of the bike is a series of four, five, and six millimeter Allen keys. Do not stick some random torx bolt onto my bicycle. I do not want it. I don't want to deal with it. It has no purpose. I hate it. I want to hear the argument for torx. Does anyone in this room have argument for I would, putting torx? I guess first I would say bike? I would say not necessarily argument for torx, but. SRAM, when they introduced using Torx, they did it on the original XX drivetrain. And they yep. used a T25 for literally every bolt on the bike. And, I'm, okay I'm, and I'm okay with that. Yep. But when you have, like, let's say you need four different wrenches to adjust a rear derailleur, that's not acceptable. Makes no sense at all. Yeah. I'm, I'm mostly just like, you know, like the bolts that attach the brakes and the shifters and things to my mountain bike. Like, why do they just randomly become torx bolts they just you know vanish in the night and they return the next morning as torx bolts and it makes me insane because then i have to go find torx well, you shouldn't feed them after midnight kaylee <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i feel like yeah t25 is usually they always make them so tiny and so shallow they strip out so easily just use t30 and it's at least more substantial and not going to strip out as easily if you have to use torx why would you have to use torx though you someone, don't someone explain this to me because you want to be different all right, well, 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 no, my, my understanding is, so Torx basically started popping up on bikes for rotor yeah. bolts. That's basically- I mean, the idea, started, right, is that it's higher you know, tolerance and it's not gonna strip out as easily. Yeah, because I mean, rotor bolts, you know, when everyone was using six bolt, um, you know, with the with the, the sort of tolerances that they had back there and where calipers were, I mean, this was like very early in the days of disc brakes when like, you know, caliper locations and space, like everything was all over the place. And my understanding is that, you know, the engineers were looking to have a shallow button head screw bolt essentially for the rotors and the only way to do that with having you know a decently high torque so that the rotors didn't fall off and not have it strip out and not have it sticking out from the the rotor a whole, whole lot was to have it use a torx head um but now it's not as much of a problem from what i can see so yeah. i don't know i feel like, why, like why if the idea of torx is that it's higher tolerance and it doesn't strip out as easily like the problem still is that the bolts have to be made properly and usually they're cheap yeah. bolts with a torx that is not high tolerance and then it strips out easier yep yeah yep yeah so a torx tool the the whole idea of the torx tool is it kind of came out you know out of um i think it was car industry actually where um hex you know only has six points of engagement whereas torx you know more than doubles that so you have far more surface area between the tool and the bolt um which basically allows them to you know provide a much higher torque for a given surface area um but as zach says it's often done in pretty poor quality in the bicycle world and very very and it's also done only in really shallow applications and that's just a recipe for disaster so yet another example of something that sounds good and should be good in theory yep but in reality is terrible right. yep like a lot of things moving on <laughs> oh yeah there's a lot there's a whole lot of that all right, Dave, I feel like you need to go next here. What you got? What do I have? That's a good question. Oh, one of the ones I wanted to rant about. And this is going to this is probably going to set off a whole wave of uh hatred. Uh hatred towards press fit bottom brackets, but specifically I'm Okay with that. I'm good with yeah, it. No so specifically <laughs> uh I'm going to kick it off with uh just just a, a quick little rant about how a lot of components, such as press fit bottom brackets, seem to be designed for easy install with 
zero thought put into how to remove it again. Yes. <laughs> uh, and there's a number of press fit bottom brackets out there on the market, and I'm going to give a, a great shout out to Seabear on this one um, for having like a, a rounded surface on the inside of the bottom bracket that basically doesn't allow you to press it out in any way. Uh, so good times with hammers can be had to ruin your $300 bottom bracket if you ever need to As remove a whole, it. when you're working on it, $15,000 bike, you should not have to use a hammer to get the bottom bracket out. No. Like, as no. a principle, should not have to happen. No. Yeah. I, I would I would add to that, you know, amongst the things that are commonly clearly meant to be installed and potentially never removed again are mountain bike full suspension pivot bearings. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Don't reuse those. Because it's it does seem like more often than not, those things are designed so that they can press in to linkages and whatnot very easily. And no one has given any well, thought no, whatsoever they have, to You have what to buy the specific be- toolkit from that company to get them out yep. that was discontinued two years ago when the bike was made. <laughs> and then that toolkit but, doesn't exist but, anymore but, when you go to work on it when the bearings need replacing. <laughs> but even, even if you have that tool, however, even if you have that tool, what happens to the ones? Because, I mean, no one brings in their, their I, I should say, Virtually no one brings in their mountain bike for pivot service until they're oh, in yeah. really, really the, bad shape. When the bearings yeah. explode, it's just the yeah. outer race stuck in there. Well, <laughs> exactly. So when you only have the outer race stuck in stuck in the in it's the bore, I don't care if you have the right tool. You're not getting that thing out of there very easily. Like that's when you get that's this when you start. What to get Craigslist really just invented for yeah. you. Just hawk that off on some poor yeah. unsuspecting I mean, person. Mountain bike 101 is you keep the mountain bike until the suspension needs service, and then you sell it. <laughs> <laughs> Which goes back to last week's uh, last episode where I where we were uh, in agreement not to buy a used mountain bike. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I was just going to bring that up. But so I I want to come back to the press fit bottom bracket thing though because I, I feel like this is a topic that we need to discuss in a little bit more detail because it's just it, it's such a pervasive. I feel like thing do we right need now. to discuss it? The situation is getting better. Press, like everyone knows, press fit suck. I know, but 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 here's the thing. So hear me out. So. I mean, the idea with press fit bottom brackets is that you know they're lighter than external comps you know, in terms of both the frame and the hardware. I mean, it's it does allow for more design flexibility in frames relative to the regular 68 millimeter threaded shells that were around at the time. You, know, you could have a wider and a larger diameter shell, for example, you know, more surface area, more width. Um, and, and in theory, it's not bad in some iterations, and it actually does provide some of those benefits when it's done properly. But like you were saying, I mean, Zach, it, like this is another yeah. one of those things that is pretty okay when it is done properly. But the issue is that in the real world, it's so often not done properly that it. Just I mean, ends you could break down basically headache. every one of the things that we're going to complain about, and it's all going to stem from like poor quality control or like poor tolerances. Is like that's the number one complaint with so many things, or like, like not- cheap manufacturing. Like it was a good idea in the engineering room, but then when it went to the factory and mass produced that it's not not feasible to make it to the tolerances that it needs to be which but, you could argue which you could then argue means it wasn't actually a good idea correct. in the engineering room right yeah. because you know the, uh, yeah. the 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 job is to think all the yeah. way through to the end yeah not just think about the, but also the, it's, the prototype it's, that you just made yeah but it's crazy to think they can't hold tolerances on some of these products when they're charging as much as a car for them yeah so well Right, right. Because part of the idea with these things being, you know, lighter and, you know, stiffer, you know, whatever other marketing claims that they're making is 
you know, they were then able to charge more for them because they were supposedly better. But the flip side of that is from a manufacturing standpoint, a lot of these things were actually cheaper to make. Um, like I, I still remember pretty vividly when, when SRAM came out with PressFit 30 as an alternative to BB30, and they were very, very explicit to uh, the, the smaller builders that they were pitching these to at the time. I mean, I was at the North American Handmade Bike Show when this was launched. I mean, they said explicitly that, you know, the, the plastic cups that they were using for these bearings, like they explicitly used plastic because it was more tolerant of that, shell like, variants. They came out with that at NABS and so many small builders came out with bikes with Presbit 30. And I feel so sad for anyone that bought a, a custom metal bike from that it, era and it has a Presbit bottom bracket. Like a metal bike should never have a Presbit bottom bracket. Because it... It's it's far and away the worst out of all the press fit formats out there because I mean it it has the bearings that are very close together and then you're using a large diameter spindle that that transfers more off axis force to those bearings and then you know pretty much any bearing engineer can can attest that a larger cartridge bearing is actually more flexible than a smaller diameter cartridge bearing so when you add all those things together you know together with potentially poor tolerances it's just an absolute recipe for disaster so even if even if you have a press fit 30 bike that doesn't make a bunch of noise the the likelihood of it actually giving you a lot of bearing life is pretty low i mean at least i mean unless you have one of those higher end custom metal frame builders in particular where the tolerances are just absolutely dead on but even then it's not that good i mean to be fair like the press fit 30 bottom brackets when SRAM came out with them were made so there was actually more surface area for you to hit it out with the hammer so that made it quite nice for being a disposable design <laughs> or install right. with right. uh two by fours which yeah. is my classic method yeah yeah oh, oh. Good, good, good. <laughs> i mean zach we, we, All right. we won't we won't say whose bike this is let's but, hear it but you no, you just when i first got here and we were preparing to make this podcast you just installed a bottom bracket oh, yeah. and a crank set on a yes. brand new bicycle brand new frame brand new crank brand new bearings pressed it all in exactly how it's supposed to be and you spin the crank and you get maybe a rotation and a half. It's and that's terrible. just like that's just expected, right? Like that's what you're gonna get. Yep. You can put yeah. a ceramic bearing in there and it's still gonna get maybe then two rotations. Yeah. What I love is that if you buy a five hundred dollar mountain bike these days, which has a, a like a ten dollar square tapered bottom <laughs> it's so much in better. It, that spins as well as a ceramic speed fitted uh Jurace crank. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, granted, bike, that bottom bracket bottom weighs bracket. like five pounds in of itself, but yeah, I'll take it. I'll take the heavy BB. <laughs> yeah, if it spins, I don't have to mess with it. Long, long live the Shimano UN seventy one bottom yeah, brackets. Yes. All right, Zach, I feel like we haven't really heard quite as much from you as I mean, I'm I kind of expecting. I don't. You, you certainly have got to have a good one on your list here. I don't actually have a list. I've been too busy actually working on bikes to sit down and make a list. Um, we, we should point out that we don't pay Zach for this podcast, by the way. So he's so he he's actually losing money by being on the podcast with us. Yep. I mean, one that like because I was just building a brand new bicycle um, from a frame up. One thing that really annoys me: this is not necessarily an engineering or a bicycle thing, but like, what do you say? It grinds your gears. It grinds my gears. Companies like to put stickers all over their bikes that the stickers need to come off, and when they use really crappy low quality paper stickers that come off in a million pieces that's really yep. not a good idea i do not appreciate <laughs> that <laughs> and they use glue that doesn't just like peel off and leave nothing they, yeah they use glue if that you leaves, have like, to put a sticker on make it so i can like easily grab it and peel it off in one go and it doesn't leave a ton of residue and you don't have to spend a bunch of time yeah. you know de-gooing it afterward yeah. 
scraping things off with and i would i would say too good good way to tell if your mechanic's not terrible if your bike still has stickers all over it when you get it when it's new not a good mechanic (laughs) stickers are part of packaging should come off (laughs) the most common one is the the rotor stickers on oh yeah the little orange stickers that's so good yeah yeah Zach's pulled a couple of those off my but i mean those are at least plastic stickers so they come off in one piece Mm-hmm. I mean, every, they should all be like plastic or vinyl stickers, right? Yeah, like then it would, would just you you just eliminate that problem. Would, and you yank them off, and it'd Canyon be fine. does a really good job of putting all these instructional and safety stickers all over their bikes when you go to build it, and they are all the cheapest plastic stickers that you can make. And they're like, I almost every Canyon I see that someone built built on their own, coming in, there's like this massive amount of half still there sticker on their crank arm that they attempted to pull off but gave up. <laughs> yeah, come on, Canyon. Better stickers. Invest in the so, future. Side note, I will say that having run into this issue myself a lot on test bikes that come in, uh, to everyone listening, I will say that generally speaking, it's usually very, very helpful to peel those stickers off really slowly. That's very helpful. And if you have a bunch of residue left on the frame, WD-40 actually works really well for getting sticker residue off, as long as you don't spray it all over your alcohol works really well, too. WD-40 I found to work better, as a matter of fact. Yeah. You don't have any WD-40. So, it's well, all it's I use. If I was working out in my garage, I would definitely have WD-40, but I don't have a garage. I, right, because you, yeah. you're a professional bike mechanic in a, in yeah. a real shop, and what yeah. else would you use WD-40 yeah. for? I, have, like, I had a lube. friend that he was a really fast mountain bike racer, and he also did motocross, and he said if you wanted to make a frame look the best it could possibly look, you spray WD-40 all over the bike instead of using like a bike luster, some sort of polish. It, mm. it does work pretty well as a polish too, but it also gets everywhere, and I can't stand yeah. that smell. Yep. Mm-hmm. Can't All stand right. it, but what? we're going to advise using it because. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Just in small doses. Yeah. Just in small doses. All right. I'm going to go next with another pretty big one, I feel like. And that is the lack of an industry wide tubeless road standard for rims and tires. Yes. Because this is basically just a giant, giant clusterfuck. And I'm surprised. I'm very surprised that that is the very first profanity that has been uttered on this podcast yeah, episode I, I so have far. I had to hold myself back. <laughs> yeah. The youths. So, so I, I, I remember, I mean, I, I wrote about when when Shimano and Hutchinson first came out with Road Tubeless back in 2008, I think it was. And, you know, it was supposed to you know offer way better flat resistance and potentially lower weights and you know better overall performance with you know supposedly no real downsides compared to conventional what? inner tube tire well yeah well hold on hold, hold, hold hear me out hear me out marketing and, very rarely lists the downsides yeah, in addition to the very, very rarely. but so i i will so in the in the 12 years since then road tubeless has certainly gotten better in has some it? ways well, hold, hold on. Wait, let me finish. Shimano Hutchison so, worked really well, and it worked every time. Well, so the, the reality is, I mean, that concept was pretty half-baked from the start. Like, you know, like they were easy to inflate, sure. The tires were really tough, but they were also really slow. They were really, really hard to get off. They used this brutal, brutal, you know, super, super non-stretch carbon bead that people broke all the time because uh, they were using tire levers because they couldn't get them on the rim because it just wasn't possible. Um, and so, yeah, things have gotten better, but the issue is that in the process of everyone trying to make that initial system a little bit better, everything has just gotten different. So now, since there is no industry-wide tubeless standard, you have very, very, a very low degree of confidence in what 
will work without actually having physically trying it. Like one of our Velo Club members actually created this big Google Doc for people to fill in for like what has fit well, what hasn't fit well. And you shouldn't have to crowdsource that sort of information. Like if you are gonna have, if you are gonna come out with a system with a tire that is supposed to fit on a rim and lock onto that rim and hold air and not blow off the wheel while you're riding it and kill you, or you know, not you know be on that? there so securely that you can't. Well, I, I think I do Inner know that. But <laughs> I, I, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, but, that but seems to solve should, all of the problems. But we we should not be in this situation. Had had road tubeless, like I mean, I'm I'm gonna come to the defense of Mavic's road tubeless system that they came out with fairly recently because that that one actually does work pretty well. The tires were not great. But like they were pretty easy to what install. What did we just say though? Like, so, like it's okay, but not great. Does not mean overall good product. No, but but, no, but, but here's <laughs> but here's the thing. I mean, so the the tires were not great, but the fitment between the the quality of fit between the rim and the tire, that was actually really good. It was very predictable, really easy to inflate, pretty easy to get off, and it did at that point offer the claimed benefits of road tubeless without big downsides at all. So like. I mean, Without we don't really need road tubeless here. Well, but th here's the thing. So we, like we always have to remember, like, you know, not everyone lives here. And a lot of people do get a lot of benefit from road tubeless. If they're, you know, bigger and heavier riders that, that pinch, flat a lot, pinch flat a lot, or if they're riding someplace where, you know, their roads are absolutely horrible, or if they live somewhere with a lot of goat heads or glass, that sort of thing. Like our roads here are pretty good. So it's not really that big of a deal. Yeah, I ride my fragile cotton tires on dirt roads and single track and stuff all the time. And knock on wood, but don't flat all the time. Don't get pinch but, flats. But again, still, like we that's here. Like, yeah, like riding on, on trails and rocks and stuff is very different from riding on terrible roads that have glass and sharp metal all yeah, over. Yeah, then them. you run gator skins. <laughs> and so, then when you do inevitably get a flat, which you will a tubeless as well, it takes two minutes to change a flat instead of spraying your entire bike and body with sealant and then still <laughs> having to put an inner tube in, right? Like if you generally let's say uh, you ride somewhere where there's terrible roads and glass and whatever you run a gator skin or something like in a tubeless tire, the thing that's going to flat both of those is a pretty catastrophic flat. Like a little tiny piece of glass isn't going to flat a heavy duty training tire. No, but so, like mean, it's catastrophic people... either way. At the end of the day, when you get a flat, you're going to have to put a tube in it. Like but the same thing that's going to flat this... a gator skin is going to flat a tubeless. But if you are insistent on riding nicer tires, which a lot of people are, a lot of people don't want yeah. to ride a heavy duty tire like a Gator skin or something or uh, or something like yeah. that. But then you're gonna I'm, shred I'm you're gonna shred boat. those tubeless tires so quickly if your roads are that terrible. No, I disagree. No. I I, disagree. I, yeah. I so do I'm, agree. I, in Sydney, our roads have glass everywhere, and I don't want to run a Gator skin. I used to, and I don't like how that tire rides. And I run road tubeless for this very reason, and I don't mind spraying because it doesn't go in my eyes. It only goes in the eyes of people riding behind. Me. <laughs> um, <laughs> And yeah, but like I haven't actually, since moving to Road Tubeless, I haven't actually had to stop to physically fix a flat. I've always had the sealant handle it. And so far, you know, touch wood, I haven't had a catastrophic failure, but it is an improvement. I mean, point. like I said, though, with my cotton tires, I, I'm not riding. We do have really nice roads here, but I ride on single track with them. I ride on dirt roads all the time. Like we ride stuff we that ride people ride. Dumb stuff. Yeah. That like is mandatory gravel bike for a lot of people. We really stupid things and like i said i don't remember the last time i stopped and changed a flat like i honestly but, i've had the same cotton tires on my bike for ages the last time the last time i stopped and changed a flat i was on road tubeless 
and <laughs> and it was some and of those ride. super super thin specialized rapide which feel nice they feel like oh, a yeah. cotton tire and yeah. so i liked them but and then, then you put your cotton tires on and you don't get flats and i don't get flats yeah but they were really thin yeah. and i sprayed myself uh and then you know i was riding around with like 35 psi and then and you had to stop and put air in it anyways yeah i i mean yeah i had i I remain unconvinced. I think if you live in Goathead land, yes. I mean, I remember like north of here where I used to live, there's a lot more sort of Goathead type things, um, you know, little barbed plant pieces, basically. And I remember like being super stoked on tubeless uh, for the mountain bike world and, and for like even cross and stuff like that back in the day because we'd ride across fields and you'd just have like four thousand of these things sticking out of your tire right and it was kind of the only option but i think it's a pretty unique use case where yeah. tubeless is actually less of a pain in the ass than just getting a flat like if you have a, a 32 millimeter or plus size bigger tire then yes run tubeless but on an actual road bike, don't do it. But at the same time, I'm sure lots of people run road tubeless and have you know basically the same story we have about clinchers, which is that I don't flat that much, and so it's great, and I like it, and I just deal with it once, and then I forget about it, and whatever. And you probably you should go check your ceiling because it's probably dry if you haven't looked right. at it in but about two months. But my point, my point being, it, disregarding the arguments for and against the concept of road tubeless in general, because I do feel like that is very case and region specific. But the um, like. Are people asking for tubeless? The whole industry was like, we're going to do tubeless and every wheel and man tire manufacturer, like we're going to do it slightly different. But like, is anyone asking for it besides 10% of the people that are on tubeless on the road? I, I, like, again, I, I would argue that if you look at it outside of our little bubble, there are actually plenty of people who swear. Like we, we oh, yeah. our Bella Club Slack channels are just completely full of people who swear by road tubeless and how well they've gotten on with it. But my point being is that whether or not road tubeless makes sense for you, the fact that the mm -hmm. optional road tubeless is so rife with inconsistency of fit is a huge problem. Yep. So like the solution, I feel like with these upcoming ETRTO and ISO standards that are that are that are coming out, um, if everyone adheres to them and if it works the way that it is supposed to, then that could remove a lot of the inconsistency that we have with the quality of fit and the predictability. The only issue, however, is that is only going to be effective if every single bit of road tubeless, everything that came out before that standard was produced is nuked. So basically everything that is road tubeless that came out before this upcoming standard, everything has to be completely destroyed and removed from circulation in order for this to, to work. Which is not going to happen. No, the industry is not going to do a, a rim entire buyback program. <laughs> I don't, no, I don't see not, that happening. But, I mean, <laughs> so it'll it'll take it'll take a long time, for, at least certainly for the wheels to to work their way out of out of circulation. No question. I mean, the tires will die off a lot quicker. Yeah, um, but, yeah, but you don't know those new tires aren't going to fit on the old rims, so like you're still not solving it, well, the problem. Well, that, that's that's the problem. It depends yeah. on what rim you have. That, that uh, lies the issue. So anyway, inner tubes, team inner tube, team inner tube. Inner tubes are great. Us and Julian Alphilippe went in yeah. Tour de France stages. And tubulars, because he was on tubulars the next day. So team clincher yeah. and tubular. <laughs> tubulars have a tube inside. Yeah, so do. we're just team tube inside. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Team tube inside. <laughs> <laughs> Andy, Andy Van Bergen, I feel like if you're listening, yeah, Andy Van Bergen is our is head, head of our kind of Velo Club membership, and he kind of handles a lot of <clears> our kind of marketing, I guess, paraphernalia stuff, swag. 
should have team Andy tube inside. Yes. T-shirts. Andy, oh. Andy, if you're listening, we should maybe have team tube inside t-shirts. <laughs> should definitely I dare have say, team tube inside t-shirts. I dare say we may have some bars on those. So anyway, <laughs> all right. Who, who wants to go next? I got a long list. Team, team tube inside on the front and on the back have fake sealant sprayed up. <laughs> oh, that would be a good one. <laughs> I wasn't kidding when I said my last flat was on was on road tubeless. It was like that was one hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, granted, those tires are like tires, paper, uh, but yeah, yeah, even so, yeah. Uh, Schwab's Pro ones were also very. The previous version were also very, very prone to cutting. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, there are. Some I mean, that's the problem. That's like the, one of the other problems which... with tubeless is the whole push of marketing is less rolling resistance. But all the rolling resistance tests are with the TT only tires, like the super. That you thin. can't actually ride. Yeah. No. So, yeah. Yeah, I would. I would. Like I said, well, we're, we're rehashing this, but team you know, tube inside. Team End tube inside. A nice cotton clincher and a latex tube is going to be more flat resistant, roll better, more flat resistant than eight tubeless tire that rolls just as well yeah. i think and maybe not like except for in goat headland but don't do like a normal corsa do you like a corsa control or a hell of the north or something that has a little bit more tread correct same really nice casing but mm-hmm. just a little more tread yep that's that's the yeah. sweet spot yeah team tube inside Unless we're talking over 32s in which case tubeless yes correct. yes I th- yeah i th- okay. i think we're pretty much all, i think the four of us are in agreement on all, on team all this. tube inside yeah yep well, if you add to the fact that your tire might just fall off, that makes me really not want to run road yeah. tubeless. Yes. I mean, can yes. you can you just let's just like quick thought experiment. Like, what if what if the bike industry was like, well, so we can't really decide on steer tube diameter. So some of them are a little bit big, and you can't actually put the stem on. Some of them are a little bit small, and when you go to turn, your wheel's actually just going to keep going straight. Like that's that's basically but you don't what know we're what, talking like, about here. You can't measure it with calipers. But you can't measure it with calipers. <laughs> you you just have to guess. Yeah. I mean that's basically right. what we're talking about here. We're talking about like the bike industry literally telling consumers to like, hey, you got this. Just wing it. You'll I mean this fine. is this is your marketing pros and cons. The pros are like less flats, less rolling resistance, and then the cons it might fall off. Yeah. But they're not gonna put that. Im- imminent death. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Lose all your teeth. <laughs> yep. Yep. And that and and the whole absurd. loser teeth thing is a very sensitive subject for me. Yeah, very sensitive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Who is is it? My turn. It might be. No, I no, just went. Did. So whose turn is it? Tubeless. Uh, I can go. I think Rome. All right, I'll go. Please be something uh, about tools. Proprietary components on modern bikes. You love that though, because yeah, you get to have so, so many more um, tools. No, not that type of proprietary, but I'm talking about like the different shaped seat posts, stems, handlebars, mm, yeah. you know, like all the new aero bikes that are using their their own integrated cockpit yep. and there's no way that you can fit anything else or their own D-shaped seat posts, which is like half a millimeter in radius. Yep. You know, I mean, I like think anything like that, very slightly like, different angle that gains a 0.5 theoretical percentage point of improvement, but how yep. practical is that to the regular person? Like anything that doesn't yeah. pass that is like, just get rid of it. Is there yeah. is there a D shaped seat post standard? No. And if not, can we invent oh, God, one? No. Because but I mean, then, that, well, that's, that seems but like you do that, and then Pinarello is going to be like, well, RD is better, and then <laughs> <laughs> you can't say RD is better. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But like giant, their defuse seat post is better. Like everyone's just going to be like, no, we're not going to go to the standard. Ours is better. But they're wrong. Yeah. No, that's fine. I'm happy if there's like three different 
shapes, right? Yeah. And then everyone can make their own layup and can make their own, you know, their own composite structure as long as they stick to one of the three D shape actual shapes. So, you know, then they're all cross compatible and you have like A, B, and C. Not gonna happen. And you can mix and match. And if you break a C post, you're not stuck waiting months to get one from the brand. Speaking of which, yes, why are there so many sizes of C post in general? Can we just have two? I mean, like I feel two like seems like enough. For round seat posts, we should get, like, you have 30.9 and 31.6. They're so close. Pick one, get rid of the other. Yep. Like, mountain bikes, mountain bikes are like, oh, I need a new dropper. You're like, well, you can't pull this one off your old bike because it's a millimeter different. Yep. Right. Except yep. that, it, you know, 30.9 was sort of the predominant size for Specialized, and 31.6 was the predominant size for Trek, and those two companies are not going to agree. No. Well, so split the middle. Yeah. Create a new standard. That's what we're all about. Oh, in the world. no. <laughs> 31.1. <laughs> Although, to be fair, to be fair, C post diameter issues are a lot better now than they were in like the Oh, yeah, for sure. Frames. Like, there was, yeah. like, you know, there was like 30 different sizes. Yeah. Of right. We have three major Zach, sizes now. Zach, when was the last time you had to order a 26.8 millimeter C post or a 26.6 or a 26.4 or a 26.2? It's been a while. It's definitely been a while. The old JMB catalog, yeah, full of that stuff. Like some steel, get me some twenty-five-four. Yeah, Love junk it. and bargains. Yeah, twenty-five-four. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what Candle uses because they are like, this is see, this is because why we don't have a standard of D. It's like <laughs> Candle's like, we're not going to do a D-shaped seat post. We're going to do twenty-five-four because it's still round, but it's just as flexy. Like why? <laughs> we need yeah. to standardize the D shape yeah. of the seat post. Yeah. And and the way the interface of like inter internal cabling with stems, you know, like that's that's going to become a problem yeah. with a lot of these new bikes using their own cockpit. I mean, in five years' time, if you break a handlebar, you're not going to be able to get yeah, a replacement exactly. handlebar for that bike. And that, yeah, there's so much so, stuff like that in the bike yeah. world right now. Everything's so like plastic and disposable that in five years you're not going to be able to get this special whatever something collar that covers something. I don't really. But know. What, so which basically I feel buy like it, two of everything. Yeah. Yeah, which I feel like you know kind of provides more evidence or provides more weight to the fact that, by and large, most of the bicycle media people that I know, you know, when we buy our own personal bikes, our bikes are very normal. Like right. you know, we yep. we did a whole big staff bikes of the bunch feature series, um, which I think we still have one or two coming. But you know, by and large, all of our bikes are metal. Metal and round tubes. round and <laughs> round tubes. like they have yep. threads on them and they're yeah. serviceable and external all that cabling stuff i mean yeah. like, right you look like up until there's some exceptions but maybe like up until five or so years ago let's just say a road bike for the previous 30 plus years you could find parts for that frame and like you can build it still and make it keep keep it rolling but now everything is so proprietary and so plastic and so disposable that it's not like in five years, you're not going to be able to make your bike keep working, let I'm alone completely 10. Completely screwed. I'm genuinely yeah. concerned about like buying rim brake pads, like high end carbon rim brake pads. Oh, like how, how much longer is the carbon, carbon big disc brake? Yeah. Big disc brake is going to just kill it all. I mean, like specifically carbon ones, right? Because that's, it's those high end bikes that are all disc now, you know, five, 10 years from now, am I going to be able to buy rim I mean, brake pads? You should pads? just ride aluminum wheels. I should just ride aluminum wheels. Well, I'll just switch to aluminum wheels. Kaylee, you, you can rest assured that I have a big enough stock for you for like, quite a long time. Like in, in five years, when you can't buy new carbon wheels, your carbon rim brake wheels, the brake track will be destroyed. They will be destroyed anyway. That is true. And then I'll build up some custom aluminum wheels, which I've been tending to do anyway. But you probably still won't be able to get nice high-end 
rim break aluminum rims at right. that point. Yeah. I'm going to order unless, it, unless it's cyclical and we come back to rim brakes. <laughs> I'm like, right. Well, it's, yeah. it's the six, the 622, the 622 millimeter diameter disc brake rotor, right? Exactly. Like the, that, that Rob English was talking about. It's yeah. revolutionary. <laughs> yep. <laughs> anyway, anyway, Dave, I feel like this, you know, this kind of discussion of some, on. yeah, well, I, I feel like your discussion just now of, you know, some of the proprietary rotting and stuff like that with stems and handlebars kind of feeds into well, it's a perfect segue into into my the next thing on my list, which is crappy internal cable routing, because there yeah. is an awful lot of absolutely absolutely horrible internal yep. uh, cable routing that's out there. So, you know, the idea behind internal cable routing is I mean it's pretty obvious. I mean it's supposed to make bikes look better, it's to sell more electronic group sets. Yeah, yeah, but it's supposed to make bikes look better. You know, making more arrows, so on and so forth. I mean, it's basically sort of all the reasons that you know Klein put forth back in the like early nineties, late eighties and whatever, whenever Gary Klein started doing this. But the reality is at least as far as how most road bike companies are doing it right now is it's a huge pain to work on. It makes the bikes arguably work worse than if the cables were just run outside no. of the frame. I, no, I know, I know. And, and, and I feel like the, the innovation leads to worse results. No, no. Yeah. It, it, imagine, imagine the horror. And the, the, one of the worst offenses that have that have come up recently with all these companies that are trying to completely hide cables from the front end is they're now running cables. Or, no, they're now running you know hoses and, and housing and stuff inside the in well, inside the upper headset bearing, which is an absolutely absolutely asinine idea. I don't even mind it, that though. I it's when it goes through the headset bearing and then through the stem and then through the back of the handlebar. Well, that's but, when it's but, really but, bad. But, but that's all that's all part of it because all those things seem to go together because like let's say someone just you know they were stuck out in the ride in in the rain one day and their upper headset bearing gets roached, which is not an uncommon thing. At that point, you have to take apart your entire bike. Yeah. Like it, it should it should literally be a five minute job that will turn into yeah. a five hour Arrow. job. Arrow is everything. <laughs> yeah. The thing the it thing with so this that, that really I find very ironic is like these bikes are fully hidden cables because it's faster for bike racing. If you're bike racing, generally you travel to go to the bike race. And if you're traveling to the bike race, you can't take your handlebars off to put it in a travel case. Oops. So how do you get to the bike race without buying a new $800 case that lets you not theory. take your handlebars off? This is a conspiracy theory of uh, SkiCon uh, are in on all bike design <laughs> because they have the case that lets you travel. Right? <laughs> yeah. Is, what's so the worst offender here? Oh, well, I mean, I think how, the, how many of them are there? There's so the many. FSA I mean, one, the FSA the one is by yeah. far the worst. And so many companies keep adopting it, and it's awful. It is garbage. Or, or if but they don't, in, or if they don't adopt the actual FSA one, they adopt something that's very similar to it. Yeah, but, but I think but the, again, it's all like the you know, specialized the one, the, the BMC, and a handful of other ones that the the cables are fully hidden still, but they come through the headset bearing, and then they come out of the stem and they run along the underside of the stem, and then you can yeah. put it into the handlebar or you can run normal handlebars. Like that's so much easier. And then if you do have to travel, you take the handlebars off. You undo the little clip, and that gives you enough slack in the housing that you can rotate the bars around. But the ones where it goes through the bar is just, or through the bar and through the stem is just absolutely terrible. Like if you want to change a stem length, you can't do that. 
No, you can. It just well, you can. It's it takes take three hours. Entire day. Yeah. And then, oh, and, and what's even better is if you change the stem and then you decided, actually, this is not the one I want to use. I need yep. to go another 10 millimeters. Then and then just, each time you, you do that, you cut the brake hose a little bit. And then essentially, and then eventually you need new brake hoses because you've kept cutting them and it's, oh, it's just terrible. I hate it. Right. So it's like yeah. another one of those things that sounds who, so good. Who on did some the first computer? The somewhere. first aerodynamic test and press release that said you're losing time by having your brake cables external. Well, like not even just external, but like, like, I mean, you can run them essentially up against the stem and yeah. have no issue. Yeah. Like that's like that's who came out and by. said, these need to go away. And I, I that person should be fired. <laughs> I, I am, I am, I'm legitimately surprised. So some, someone, some crazy inventor somewhere is going to listen to what I'm going to say right now and jump on this. Um, but I am surprised that, so I, do you, do you all remember when, when Yakima roof racks all they had were round crossbars. And this is yeah. you know, however many years ago. They don't have round and crossbars they, anymore. Well, no. They, I mean, well, I mean, people are mostly buying arrow-shaped crossbars now, even from Yakima and Tuli People and still sort of use thing. roof racks. Everyone uses hitch racks. I know. <laughs> will, you, will, you, will you just let me finish here? So, so when 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 Yakima thing to say. when Yakima was predominantly round crossbars, they came out with this plastic clip-on fairing thing that you could snap around the round crossbars and make them basically arrow, but still have a round crossbar inside. I am honestly surprised that with all this attention on, you know, kind of marginal gains and arrow and so on and so forth, that someone hasn't come up with something that can be cut to length that will fit around conventional, how, no, con stop. conventional do not give or break people housing. this idea. No, <laughs> well, just you, can we delete this section? No I, one, this I, should not I am, exist. I'm honestly, I'm honestly surprised that someone hasn't thought of it already. Okay. Because, because if someone were to come out with that and be like, you know, look now, now your housing is arrow. So now you don't have to run it inside the frame. Like I would actually be willing to, to deal with yeah. that, to, to deal with that. If no, if I would just leave not my having to run everything inside. Yeah. And take the, take yeah. the penalty. Uh, well, no, yeah. but, but or you could just you could go to the hardware store and get those like little cable clips with the little nail in them that you just hammer into place, and they you know the ones that you run along skirting boards. To, oh yeah, perfect. To, like put yeah. the power cords in place. Yeah, yeah. Just do that. I mean, it'll probably be pretty hard to get them into like an aluminium stem, but they'll they'll hammer straight into a. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think from a personal standpoint too, like all of the hidden cables, like I'm fine with, right? Like I. It's you not make, that, you it's make not, money off these bikes. But it's like, it's not, it's realistically, it's not even that hard. It's just time consuming. But like it, people aren't going to work on it themselves. But I think from a, from a mechanic standpoint, like there's only one way to put this bike together, right? You like run the cables through and that's the bike. Like you can't really mess that up. And I think with yeah. having normal external cables, like you can really tell immediately like, oh, that person knows what they're doing and cares what they're doing versus when it's all hidden, you're like, oh, well, it's probably done right. And I think you lose some yeah. of that art of having like really nice cable sure. routing, which to me makes me sad. <laughs> I, I, I would, I, I would I agree. Do, I would, yeah, I would like to just give a very quick shout out to, um, to SRAM here because, uh, their wireless shifting, I mean, it's also created problems because it's made people, it's, it's allowed brands to be very lazy with, uh, internal cable routing design, but the wireless shifting, they have done a very good job with I'm that. I'm just waiting for wireless breaks. And it, <laughs> Yeah, but uh, it is a pleasure to set up a, a SRAM ETAP bike versus setting up something with more wires. I mean, I feel like though, instead, it's like in these modern aero machines, everyone's like, oh, it takes so it's so quick to build an ETAP bike. But it's like, instead of running a cable, you're updating the firmware. Like, you're still doing things. It's not just bolted derailleur on. Right. Like, you're still, because yeah. you, it still takes you know the same what else is really easy? Yeah, but you know what else is really easy to set up? 
a frame with external cable housing with split housing oh, yeah. stuff. You don't have to sell you can me build on up this. that whole bike. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my, seen our my, bikes. my bike has external cables. <laughs> all, all of ours do. I think I believe all of our bikes have that. All of our personal bikes, anyway. So, but here's the thing. All right, so yeah. so the solution in my eye, in my eyes, for for internal routing on a road bike is basically to, in whatever way possible, mimic what people have done on the mountain bike side, which it took mountain bike designers years to do this, but mold in end-to-end -end guides. So the, on I, a frame, I think on a mountain bike that makes sense. On a road bike, you don't you lose out on so much of the modularness of having. Well, no, you can well, run I, mechanical I, or you I'm, can run I'm, electronic. I'm getting, or... I'm getting to that. So okay. like, there, there are there are definitely issues that are around that because on mountain bikes, you, again, you definitely don't have as much choice. You have basically SRAM wireless or you have mechanical because you know very very few mountain bike companies build for Shimano Di2 wired transmissions anymore. Yeah, um, right. and it's basically just gone by the wayside. But on the roadside, yeah, you have. You have mechanical, you have wireless, you have wired, you have all these different options that are still on the table. But at the same time, you do have bikes now that are built specifically for certain drivetrain types. And I feel like that is probably gonna become more likely than not, uh, or more common than not, given how much attention is being paid to, you know, bikes getting sleeker and more aero, that sort of thing. But if you are going to do that, at least make it easy to set the damn thing up. Like on those mountain bikes that have, that have the molded in tubes, like you feed in a hose or a housing at one end of the frame and it just magically pops out where it's supposed to. I would say I, they're not faultless. <laughs> no, they're not, they, they are not faultless, but it is still way better than trying to fish everything. The, the fact that there are all these different toolkits and solutions and you know people people suggesting to use a vacuum to suck a cable through a frame. See, like, you shouldn't have I've to never do any understood of this that though. Like I work on bikes with my internal routing all the time and I've never needed the park internal routing kit or a vacuum and some floss like it's not that hard but 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 you know what you're doing and most yeah. people do so not take know your what bike they're doing. to someone that knows what they're doing everyone ship their bikes to zach no there's plenty of good <laughs> mechanics around but like don't go to some college kid who it's his part-time summer job so he can get a discount on a bike like go to someone who knows what they're doing that is handy yeah although okay. i managed to run an internal dropper yeah, routing it's not recently. that hard. I did. did it did require say, like some fishing with a with a coat hanger to get it out because I did not have the tool to take the uh, Cannondale crankset off, so I couldn't get into the bottom bracket, so I couldn't actually like help it move up through there. Right, but, but we figured but it out. If, my but my if major it was guided flaw, from end to end, if it was guided from end to end, you could have taken that housing for your dropper post, yeah. fed it in, and then it just would have popped out where you needed it. Would have been sweet. My major flaw with the guided. If you're a sweater or you ride somewhere with a lot of nastiness or whatever, yeah. and you get some stuff down in, because the where the guide is, where the housing, there's room in between the housing and the guide. You get all that yeah. gunk in there, and it gets all sticky and gross and just sticks together. And then you go to change the housing, which should be a super easy thing. Just pull the old housing out, put the new housing in, and it's stuck, and you can't <laughs> get it out. And then that's it. You have well, that like, housing like, forever in your bike. Like I said, the, the the this solution is not without problems that need to be overcome. Yeah. But ultimately, the solution I feel like we are all agreeing with here is just to run the things on the outside of the frame, and then none of this is a problem. Yeah. Or I think if it's going to be internal, have have a big enough opening that you can actually access things. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. And have like yeah, in some cases, some bikes even have multiple. Openings. Yeah. Or like um, if it's the one of my pet peeve here. If you have mechanical cable routing and it's internal and the bottom bracket guide, like you have to take that guide out in order to access the cable. Let's say you only have to replace the rear shift cable. I should not have to undo and replace yeah. the front cable as well. 
so that I can that replace such a pet peeve of like mine. that should not be a thing. That's like it all stems too yeah. from the if you're gonna build something or design something, have a proper mechanic put it together and tell you whether this is acceptable or not. Yeah, and then listen to them. Yeah, and yeah, actually, like take their advice. <laughs> I think one of the problems on right. the roadside though is internal guides are weight. Yeah, and in the roadside, you know, 30, 40 grams is now like a big deal I with mean, this road is frames what, again. What got right? us to press fit bottom brackets? Yeah, I mean, you know, literally, like, oh, you're like, oh, wow, it's seven hundred, or oh, man, it's high eight hundred, so yeah. heavy because everything's right? heavier now with I this. Actually- <laughs> Yeah, I actually think there's market potential now. If a brand would come out and say, we made the frame 20 grams heavier, but you can replace your rear derailleur cable separately of the front. <laughs> I actually think they would sell more bikes of that because people would be like, oh, they're really thinking about the smallest details here. Yeah, I like this. exactly. You know, this is- I mean, you don't right, even well, have, I, you yeah, don't, so- it doesn't even have to add weight, right? Like, you're like, you have the little plastic guide on the bottom bracket. Just cut it in half. You're saving weight because you've lost that that little millimeter of area that you've cut out. We've yeah. solved it. I've, I, fe- I, I think we've just figured out the title for this week's Nerd Alert podcast is Zach Gets Angry. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> we are, we are in his, we're in his realm right now. Yeah. He, de- he does deal we with are, this totally. stuff. Unlike us, we yeah. like, we deal with this stuff when it shows up on we a brand like new brand bike new every one. once in a while. Yeah. And it's, and then we're like, oh, I've been riding this bike. I've been testing it. Oh, I've had it for three months. I'm gonna send it back. Don't you know? Don't need to ride it anymore. I'm I'm, I'm I'm all done with it. Zach gets to deal I mean, with the I one have, that's been I under some say, sweaty, gross ogre for like three years. Yeah. <laughs> I've also, I would say I've not upset's not the right word. Made someone made multiple reps jobs much more difficult. Where they like come in and they ask like, "What improvements would you make?" Like, okay, let me write down this massive list and send you this email of a book. <laughs> And then it's like, okay, thanks for making more of my job terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, now they can just listen to this podcast. Yeah. The, the industry just yeah, needs to exactly. listen to this podcast. Yeah. All right. So I, I know I just went, but I'm going to go again because it's sort of just, it, it's a natural lead in because my next th- thing on my list is just the idea that everyone just wants to go faster. And the fact that so much of R&D development is single-mindedly geared toward making bikes quote unquote faster and the idea that everyone wants to go faster because i feel like it when when I mean, you have that single minded strava yeah yeah <laughs> but i guess my thing is when you when you have that single minded goal then all of a sudden you start ignoring all these other things that we're talking about like practicality and serviceability and durability you know ease, ease of service and you know just all these real world benefits that other people would prioritize but they don't get to you because their choices don't matter. I feel like yeah. we, we were sort of headed in the right direction with like endurance bikes for a while. Like when that yeah. was sort of like the big mm-hmm. thing, you know, when the Roubaix came out and the Domane and everybody had their endurance bike. And now that's sort of, that's like not a, doesn't feel like it's a marketing thing that works anymore. Like all of a sudden we're, we're, we're more focused on race bikes again for some reason. Uh, maybe because, of disc brakes because those race bikes are now sort of marketed as, as a little bit more sort of all rounders uh, in and of themselves. But yeah, it does feel like in the last, just in the last couple of years, we've gone back to this focus on like, let's ride this bike really fast, as fast as possible. It's going to save you, save you Watts or whatever. Whereas 
in that sort of 2012 to 2016, 17 range, it felt like the focus was, this is the most comfortable road bike you've ever ridden. But that was also at like the peak of like being able to work on road bikes and it's all 11 speed and it's all interchangeable and it's all more or less easy. It was the glory days. But I feel like too, like if bike companies were making bikes for ease of maintenance and durability and stuff, they would be metal. And if bike companies were making metal bikes, then they would be admitting that the last 15 years of carbon bikes maybe weren't the greatest thing ever. Which they I, won't do. I, dis- yeah. I disagree a little bit because we, we've yeah. ta- Dave and I have certainly talked to a variety of kind of carbon expert people who have all attested that if you just made carbon frames even just a little bit heavier, like 50, 100 grams, mm-hmm. then the durability of That'd those carbon amazing. frames would go but up. But I'm not, so, I guess I'm not so saying much. the durability of the carbon. The carbon enables the bike companies to do really dumb things that they're not going to stop doing like sure, stupid I, seat clamps or stupid derailleur hangers or terrible cable routing like yeah. carbon they're like oh but it doesn't have to be round well. we ha- can do all these things yeah but they, they are they're achieving the same stupid things with with alloy now as well so, yeah i mean it's not uh <laughs> i don't understand you know, like it's not limited to carbon i mean carbon opened the door to that but it's uh if you want a durable yeah. easy to work on bike go see your local custom bike builder and get a nice custom metal bike that isn't made dumb it'll just be expensive yeah I, I don't have any issue with carbon bikes like no. i like carbon bikes we I, you know i ride a lot of them they they have a certain ride quality that you just you just frankly you don't get on any other metal bike right yeah. what's the, not necessarily that it's better or worse it just it just is what it, it's a it's carbon you just know when you're but on it's a made bike. to be disposable but it is somewhat made to be disposable and and like that outdates itself so easily correct I, I, like I if you see someone on a sl5 a tarmac sl5 which is like a three-year-old bike, maybe four years old. Really nice bike still. But if you see someone on that, you're going to be like, oh, that person on that old SL5 basically riding well, around on garbage. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily I wouldn't say, say that, that bikes no, are designed like I'm not going to actually say that. But, but like, yeah, but you're not going ride, to keep riding that forever. I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that bikes are designed to be disposable. I, I'd say that it just kind of comes back to this argument that when your primary focus is on improving the quote unquote performance of the bike, yeah. then all these other aspects that should matter more to regular people don't matter as much to yeah. the person who's designing the bike. I mean, so, I think I, I ranted on that a little bit a couple of weeks ago. It was like the end goal of all these bike companies should be to make a better product that's easier to use for the general public. Like at the end of the day, we want to get more people on bikes whether it's high end or low end or whatever, like it should be to make this as easy of a process as possible. Not this like you have this tubeless that could blow off, but they might be fine. And it's like, you have to charge your batteries so you can ride, but there's a light, but like, hopefully it works. And just like all these things that are make the top 2% of cyclists make their them faster, but the rest of the people, it's not better. Right. But again, when you have this single minded focus on, you know, racing and competition and making everybody go faster, then you don't focus on these other things like, you know, making things easier to work on and getting more people involved in cycling who maybe aren't in it already, that sort of thing. So we're just we're we're constantly in this, you know, self-contained little feedback loop and it it doesn't get any better. Yeah. I mean, you guys are basically you're, you're saying the same thing, right? Like and the reality is that right now, the 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 places that are paying attention to that sort of usability and and longevity and and ride quality and things like that like those are right now custom builders and things like that right like the it's the it's the small the smaller brands in a lot of ways uh the big brands are clearly motivated 
elsewhere. They find their motivation elsewhere and they, and they are going after other things. And, you know, I think that like pretty much the entire industry is, is guilty of that. And yeah, it comes back to just that, that, that need to be quote unquote better and then improve and improve and improve and more and more performance, more and more performance that doesn't necessarily serve the end user. And a lot of the things we've been talking about today are, are a direct result of that mindset. When, as we said, the four of us here are essentially riding bikes that maybe have some updated components, but are not all that different from what you would have ridden 20 years ago. I mean, I feel like there was a glimpse of this when gravel first was starting to be a thing. Like a glimpse, and it was great. Like people wanting to just ride bikes, just to ride bikes and have a good time and enjoy it. And the bikes were straightforward and simple, and then racing took over. And now the gravel bikes are dumb. Right, which which which, racing. which we predicted was going to happen. I don't remember how long ago, but I mean, Kaylee, you and I have yeah. definitely talked about this before. Before how and I feel like like the the racification of gravel riding. We we joke about making cross country racing great again, and like right now, cross country mountain bikes at the end of the day, pretty simple. And that, like, I guarantee you, within a few years, if that there's going to be internal cables and all this stuff, and it's just like, stop it, people, just leave it alone. It's well, it's already happening. Yeah, the new canyon. It's so stupid. To, yeah, so terrible. But, yep. But I mean, it's we're just kind of repeating lessons. Like you know, if you think back, like Canada used to have electronic lockout. Oh, yeah. and Stuff. So I mean, the complicated, you know, the complicated components are are not new. They're just being redone. Yeah revisited i mean it, it's worth pointing out that it is in the nature of engineers in general to never be completely satisfied with something the way it is even if something is really really good just the, the very nature of engineers is to make things better or find some way to improve something that's just kind of the, the nature of it which i and think that's, that's all, okay that, it's when marketing that's gets, well, a, gets well, a hand on it yeah i think that that's all well and good i think the issue is that you know i i think in, in at least our opinions that it oftentimes is the case where these engineers are choosing the wrong things to try and improve. Or they're being told that that's the box that they need to check, right? Yeah. Like, yes. You, exactly. know, you know, a lot of the, a lot of times the, the, the engineer himself, herself is not, they're not, they're not the deciding ship. what the end goal is. They're just meeting the goal. Right. And, and so, yeah, w w blaming engineers is not really the problem. It's sort of like whatever those big, those big picture conversations are, they're like, all right, what does our next bike look like when they sit, when, when a bike company sits down and makes that list on a, on a whiteboard of the things they want their next bike to have. And when it includes things like fully integrated, you know, fully integrated housing and whatever else that's, that we're finding annoying here, that's that's essentially that's uh, the whole problem to go back to the internal routing one thing i have a question has anyone talked about or brought up so the cables now they go inside the headset bearing and then they sit there and rub along the head tube the carbon or not the head tube the steer tube they sit there and rub along the steer tube what's going to happen in five years of rattling and moving around every time you turn of that housing just slowly sawing away through your steer tube what do you think is going to happen, Zach? Exactly, right? Like you see that on bikes that the cable routing is done poorly and the cable sits there and rubs the outside of the head tube. Like it goes through the paint and then it goes through the carbon. So I, I have a fun little little side story related to that. So back when Ibis did their, um, I guess, Oh yeah, they have a Ibis, metal, not, metal not, sleeve that goes over the floor. Yeah. So, so it doesn't go I, through the aluminum steer tube. Right. But, but, but now but we have you know, raw but, carbon steer tubes. But do, you, but do you know why that's, do you know why that little stainless sleeve came to be? Because someone probably died. Me. 
You? No, it wasn't. Yes. It wasn't. It wasn't that. It was because when I reviewed that bike and took it apart to get a frame weight, which I was still doing a lot of that back in the day, I recalled seeing like this polished ring yeah. around the steer tube where that housing was rubbing on the steer tube, and I called up Ivis and I was like, uh, "Hey guys, this is not good. This is going to cause a problem." So then, not very long after that, they were like, "Here's the solution," which. Granted, they, they made a better fix for that on later editions, but that is the reason, as far as I know anyway, that's the reason why that sleeve came to be. But no one is doing anything about this on the road. Like every one of these bikes is just a normal steer tube and the brake hose is just sitting there rubbing along it. Yeah, but Zach, steer tube failures have never happened. I know, right? I've never... Bike, well, so I think it's a non-issue. Three letters? I don't remember what it was, but <laughs> somebody's, handle, somebody's <laughs> handlebars broke off because of their D-shaped steer tube. <laughs> If only there was a D-shaped standard. <laughs> oh, man. Mm. Oh. That's right. like a legitimately terrifying one. Right? It is. It is. I mean, yeah. it, steer tube failures are something that I think about. I think I've brought this up before. I mean, there there is a descent coming back into town here um, called Lee Hill. And it's this ripping fast descent. Super fast. Super fun. And there is this one corner in particular. It's left-hander. You don't even have to hit your brakes. But, but it looks you know, like you do. A bit, I know it which looks like you about. have to. And there's a you know there's a big there's a big drop to the right side. There's a big metal guardrail, and every time I go through that corner, I have to fight to keep myself from thinking, "What would happen if my steering tube broke right now?" That's every time I ride my gravel bike, which has tubeless because it's over a 32 mil tire. Every time I ride my gravel bike with tubeless down the road, and I'm ripping around a road corner, I think there's nothing holding this tire on. <laughs> oh, God, <laughs> that crosses my mind too. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> Yeah. Hookless rims. Um, no, thank you. But James, just just to add to your fear, just imagine if your brake hose is rubbing on your steer tube. It is possible that your brake hose could like leak. Yeah, out you could saw it at like the same time that your steer tube. <laughs> right, oh, like, thank, but thank no, you. like, that, Dave. all jokes that. aside, like, no one's doing anything about this. And in five years, I guarantee you, there are going to be some worn through steer tubes. Hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because I mean, yeah. the, the plastic on housing seems like it's pretty innocuous, but it does wear through frames. Like yeah. anyone who has had a mountain bike that has external cable housing where the housing rubs on suspension, like moving suspension parts. Yeah. That little bit of plastic is going to rub through your carbon frame at yeah. some point. It goes through the paint like nothing. And then it goes straight into the carbon. And anyone that's arguing that's like, oh, well, it's inside your frame. There's not dirt and grit in there. Like you've not pulled a fork out of someone's bike before. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Right. And yet, yet again, yet again, another example about how something looks good on paper or on a computer, but is not how it should be in the real world. Yeah. This is quite an episode, guys. Yeah. I, I feel it's like quite an episode. pretty long at this point. Yep. It's a good thing we got well, Velo Club because we have do, no advertisers do, left. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they are all gone. They're all gone. Well, on, on that note, on that note, do, do we all feel a little bit better, like having vented a little bit? Like, I, I mean, I this is like, like I do this to it. Kaylee every time. Yeah. yeah. Bikes. So this is literally. Zach and I just went for a bike ride. That's that's exactly what just yeah. happened. <laughs> and, Identical. And, and, and listeners listeners can't see this, but look how happy Zach is right yeah. now. That's the biggest smile I've seen so in your face in ages. And I know I have a couple more hours of work to do. So yeah, like less, like, less happy. <laughs> I think I think your cheeks probably hurt right now. Like you've been, yeah. just been like in your element for the last hour. Yeah, that's fun to make but, fun of products. With with that said. I do feel like it probably is time for us to wrap up because so. we could we could do this could get, all day. Do do multiple episodes oh, yeah. of this. I mean, yeah. it's not to say that we're not going to do it. It's not to say that we're not going to do this again. But I feel like we need a little bit of a break. Yeah. But Kaylee does bring up a good point. Is you know the the fact that we do have Velo Club 
is very important because it does give us more freedom to just rant like this and complain about stuff that deserves to be complained about. We should and also talk about Kaylee's new hashtag that everyone should start using. Which oh, is, your yeah. bike engineer hates you. <laughs> when if there's yeah. something really dumb on your bike, please use this hashtag. <laughs> Kay- Kaylee, I, I feel like we need to explain that a little bit just so that people aren't unnecessarily upset with us. That's true. Well, uh, first, there's your bike hates you. Which, if you've not looked on Instagram, you should definitely. Look yeah, at. so that that's the inspiration. That's a great there's, one. A, there's a hashtag in a Facebook group called hashtag Your Bike Hates You, which is mechanics posting photos of bikes that they get in where the owner of said bicycle has just absolutely thrashed this thing, right? Like, or made some sort of yeah. ridiculous bodge to like fix something in the wrong way. It's just a really good hashtag. It's you a great hashtag. If you listen to this podcast, you like this podcast, you will like that hashtag. Go check it out on Instagram. So it came from that. I, I do want to be very clear. Your bike engineer doesn't actually hate you. In fact, They're I've met a lot of them. People. They're very good people. They love you. They they love bikes. They're just trying to make the best bikes they can possibly make. As we were saying earlier, they're not always given maybe the best directive uh, because engineers are, at the end of the day, you know, they're executing on a plan, right, in the best possible way. And so your your bike engineer hates you. Hashtag your bike engineer hates you. It's actually just sort of things that end up on a bike that really shouldn't have. And we're going to blame the engineer, even though we know that it's actually a team effort when things get screwed up this badly. Uh, we can't, you know, your bike marketing your director. bike marketing director, <laughs> your bike com- your bike company hates you. I don't know. We could we could we could switch it up, I guess, but. You know, at the end of the day, the engineer is sort of responsible for making sure that things actually just work. So. We're not actually hating on the engineer. No. Just the silliness. We love many bike engineers. Uh, yeah, but we there are a couple things, you know, there, there's uh, was a flat mount to, to post mount random like adapter thing on a bike that I had recently. Uh, what was the other one that we had? Uh, so your flat mount one was good. Flat mount I feel was, like I had one that I don't remember what it I was. I posted two of them. Basically, all cable routing is pretty good. Yep. <laughs> oh, no, it was road tubeless. I That's couldn't right. get it. Yes, your bike engineer hates you. Talking about standards that don't exist. I had a mm. tire and rim combination that I could not get the tire off, and I had to put it in a vice to rip the oh, tire yeah, off. Oh, yeah, I remember that one. Yep, that was yeah. a good one. Yep. That's yeah. where it, that's... I've had to do that with a Zip 303 before. Yeah, it's really... It feels really uh, good. It was, the, it was the Schwab tires. For yeah. Me, but, yeah. Yeah, so that that's that was actually the original one. That was the first one that made us invent this hashtag. Uh, and, and then we were riding, and I saw your bike, and I was like, "Well, that's really dumb." <laughs> <laughs> Correct. Yeah. And again, you know, it's like some of these things are not—they're not malicious. They're not like—they're not really that bad. They're just—you just look jerks. at them, and you're just like, "Why? Why? Why did you do that?" So yeah, if you've got a good one for us, hashtag your bike company hates you. Your bike engineer whoever you think is is responsible is probably I, good I, I feel like at this point we need to stick with your bike engineer hates you because you've started it and right. it seems to have taken hold a little bit and sorry bike engineers everywhere it's you know kaylee has started something yet again like fight back to the marketing director <laughs> yep yep yet yet again kaylee has started something that he cannot take back so true with that let's go ahead and wrap Thanks, up kaylee. because i do feel better now and i'm hungry because it's dinner time here so it is uh, to recap if you liked what you heard today, please consider subscribing and giving us a comment and a like on whatever platform you've been listening to this on. Uh, and thank you, Wallace, for that for that shake. Um, <laughs> Shop dog. And if, if you have something that you think we should be adding to this list, leave us a comment on the article page on Cycling Tips. And please, please consider signing up for Velo Club. 
so that we can continue doing this because seeing as how we just lost all of our advertisers, we still need jobs. I mean, well, we should have, we should have at the start came out with a list of all the companies so we could equally hate on them all. So it's, so like, it's all yeah, fair. We were, we were pretty equal. I, I think we were pretty, pretty equal. Well yeah. Most of the major players got some hate, you know, at, at some point today. Uh, yeah. I mean, that, you know, the reality is nobody's perfect. Like uh, we were joking somebody somebody an engineer actually uh brought up in the velo club slack that the your bike engineer hates you is quite mean and i i proposed your bike journalist hates you and i think that people should feel just as just as free to post that as well because frankly you know i remember when flat mount came out and i was like oh sweet like that looks way better and it's lighter and it's more arrow and i was like oh this is great good job bike industry you made flat mount and it took us a little while to figure out that it was horrible and so you know i i i'm not proud of those stories that i wrote in 2014 or whatever so sometimes your bike journalist hates you too and we, we're we're not above admitting our mistakes no it was a mistake 100 <laughs> percent mistake I was right. wrong about that one. With with that, I'm going to go make some dinner. Yeah. And we'll see you all in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Bye, right. everybody. Bye. Bye. <laughs>